please rate, review, and subscribe to Dare to Explore wherever you listen to podcasts. Dare to Explore is powered by the U.S. Space and Rocket Center Education Foundation, which supports the educational programs of the U.S. Space and Rocket Center, home of Space Camp, working to inspire the next generation of explorers. Learn more about the Foundation's mission at rocketcenterfoundation.org. Did I ever write songs about about outer space? No. <laughs> I use my music to. Uh, I use my. <laughs> I use my music as a form of my own mental anguish and therapy. So all my songs are about loathing and <laughs> drug addiction and, and all the stuff that a lot of us write about. You know. Um, no, I never did, but you just gave me a good concept for a new album anyway. <laughs> if, I ever, if I ever get back in there and, and make a new record. Chris Vrenna is a musician, producer, engineer, programmer, and songwriter, most famous as the drummer for Nine Inch Nails. He's played with Marilyn Manson, Guns N' Roses, Smashing Pumpkins, and more. And he's composed music for video games in the Quake, Doom, Sims, Sonic the Hedgehog, and Call of Duty series. Today, he teaches music technology and is on the board of directors for the U.S. Space and Rocket Center Foundation. I'm Ryan Faricelli. Join me as I learn what makes this extraordinary individual dare to explore. I've got a spaceship that I'm waiting for. I'm flying up to the stars. I'm gonna dare to explore this time. I'll let you know what I find. Chris is a Grammy Award-winning Rock and Roll Hall of Fame member. He was the drummer for Nine Inch Nails. How does he end up on the board for the U.S. Space and Rocket Center Foundation? Yeah, that is a good question. I often wonder myself, how in the (laughs) world did I get here? Um, Maybe that's more existential than literal, but uh, (laughs) but, uh, I'm a teacher. I'm actually now a tenured professor of music technology at Calhoun Community College uh, here in the Huntsville Decatur area. It is the largest two-year school in Alabama. And I've been teaching since 2013. That was my first fall teaching, so I'm I'm just entering my 10th year. Uh, My first five in Wisconsin, and now my second five here in in Huntsville. And uh, one of the other professors who teaches uh, history and political science, was talking about it. And part of the reason I actually took the job in Huntsville was the Space and Rocket Center. Um, not even a joke. I, I had applied at several different colleges, both two-year and four-year, in various locales around the country in various states. And I liked, I liked Calhoun's situation the best. They had just built this brand-new building that was only a year old called the Alabama Center for the Arts that is a collaboration between the state and between Calhoun and Athens uh, State University, which is like our sister to college, was an opportunity for me to kind of kind of build things my way, the right way, the modern way, however you want to phrase it. I don't know if my way is really the right way. Well, it is my way, so whatever. Um, <laughs> that's why they wanted me, was they, they wanted me to go. So I came down here 
and didn't really know anything about Huntsville other than the fact that I know this is where Von Braun had settled, you know, when they brought him over after World War II. And other than that, I didn't really know anything about it. Matter of fact, I'd never, in 30 years, I'd never played a show in the state of Alabama. Really? Yeah, never, never played one. Um, I've only ever played once in Nashville, believe it or not. Hmm. Um, it's very country, especially 25 years ago when, you know, Downward Spiral was huge and everything like that. So I flew into Nashville and ran out of car. Long story longer, I had it. My, my final interview was first thing in the morning, but my flight wasn't until about five or six o'clock out of Nashville. So I had planned to like, well, I, I know I've got this whole day, so I'm going to just kind of drive around Huntsville. And um, so I went to the Rocket Center and just went in and I've got tons of pictures of me and I like doing the selfies in front of all the artifacts and stuff and <laughs> really enjoyed it. And then I drove over to Bridge Street and had lunch at one of the restaurants and then I drove up to Nashville. But anyway, so I ended up taking the job and I live five minutes from the Rocket Center. And then one of our other professors that teaches political science is on both Rocket Center boards. I... I said to him, you know, how much I love outer space and NASA and just the whole concept of the science behind everything. It's just, it's just kind of the pinnacle of mankind really up to up until this point. He brought me up to the, they, they had a few openings in the, in the education board and he asked if I would, you know, but kind of brought me up. I was invited to come to one and, you know, so I went to one and in education, they're, they're pushing this thing called STEM Right. Science, technology, engineering, math. But before there was STEM, there was a different variation of that called STEAM. The A in STEAM being for arts, but they've pulled that out and they went for STEM. So my whole shtick, and I don't know if I said it to you when I met you, but my entire shtick is I want to put the A back in your STEM. And because creative thinkers come from the arts not from regurgitating facts out of a textbook. And right. um, so they were more than happy to invite me on the board. Coming from my background, I'm just not like anybody else. <laughs> <laughs> Usually everywhere I go, I'm like the only one of me uh, with, with that. So I, I just thought maybe I could do some good for the city and for education and for the Rocket Center and for kids. And at the same time, fight to put the A back in there a little bit. So that's kind of the long version of my philosophy and, and you know, why I, I, why I do it. Where did your love for space start? Talk about when you were a kid, were your, were your parents in it, scientists or anything? My dad was a city engineer, got his master's degree in engineering from Michigan. So I, I, I grew up in Pennsylvania in a, a small town called Erie. Wasn't that small when I grew up. It was actually as big as Huntsville. It was a quarter million, if not more. We had a GE locomotive. It's part of the Rust Belt. So we had steel mills. We had a hammer mill paper factory that made the whole city stink when they were doing the the, the, the water process. I forgot what that's actually called. But we all knew when they were doing it because the whole city would stink for days. Yeah. Sadly, since I graduated high school and left, every one of those industries I mentioned are gone. And the city's maybe 100,000 now. It's pretty sad. But so he was a city engineer for for Erie. Uh, He was like water engineering. So sewers, water lines, water purification centers, waste, just, you know, uh, those kind of things, you know. So... You know, but that, that that's about it. You know, and I'm a little too old for space camp, uh, unfortunately. You know, by the time space camp was invented, I was, you know, just out of high school. Right. Uh, you know, I was going down a whole other path of rock and roll at that point. My dad and I, one thing, you know, 
that we used to do a lot was go to movies. My dad loved the movies. And, you know, we didn't have a lot of money, so we never had central AC. Shock. You know, everybody's like, how did you live? And it's like, poorly. That's how. <laughs> um, God, summer's got bad. So we would go to the movies to escape the heat and, and things like that. And so I saw Star Wars, the original one, the real one, in the theater in 1977, five or six times with my dad. Um, but the movie that got me was Close Encounters of the Third Kind by Spielberg, where, you know, where we start actually tracking them and then the ship lands at Devil's Monument and the whole thing. And, and I, I slept outside for like a week, you know, with binoculars <laughs> in a tent looking for UFOs and just, you know, admiring this space. Um, and one night around that same time, um, the Aurora Borealis, something was going on and they had there was going to be a phenomenon where they moved down over the Great Lakes, which right. rarely ever goes down that south, you know? Yeah. Um, but it did. And my dad, you know, dragged me out of bed at, you know, four o'clock in the morning. And he's like, you got to come see this. And we just sat outside, you know, drinking coffee. I used to, I've been drinking coffee since I was a little kid. And uh, <laughs> probably one of the issues I have. Um, but we sat outside watching the Aurora Borealis like all night, you know, when when, when it started up still to this day I just can't believe I actually got to watch that for a whole night like it just never creeps down that far from the poles you know so I just always kind of had this thing with that you know I I remember you know um, I was in college the day the Challenger uh, blew up and um, I had walked into one of my classes at Kent State and teacher had a TV on a cart in there and they were just watching the news and I was like what you know, we didn't have class that day. We just watched the footage. And, and so, you know, I've just, I don't know, I've just always had this thing. And living in California, we get the sonic booms when the shuttle would come right. uh, through the sound barrier when they would land it out there, you know, which they didn't do all the time, but they would do every once in a while and you get to hear that. I, I just had this weird thing where I just was always fascinated by it because it was just, I'm fascinated by things I don't understand and I don't know. It makes me want to understand them and to know them. Um, Did you ever want to be an astronaut? Like, I mean, had that ever crossed your mind? No, not as a little kid. Um, I wanted to be a lawyer. And at one point, (laughs) I used to watch some TV show with my parents, a courtroom drama in the 70s. I couldn't even tell you which one it was. Um, not Matlock or anything like that, but, right. uh, yeah, but with something like that, and I was like, this would be great, man. Just like, you know, arguing and fighting all these people. <laughs> and, like, this is good. and then, you know, I grew out of that. Thank goodness. Um, and then I've been playing drums since I was six and I saw my first concert when I was 10. Who was it? Uh, Boston. And it was on the don't look back tour. So maybe I was 11 or 12 and it was don't look back their second record. Opening for them was Sammy Hagar when he was still the Red Rocker. This was 78. I still have my ticket stub, and I still have my T-shirt in a a tub out in my garage somewhere. That's awesome. And my dad took me, and, you know, next we had an arena in Erie called the Erie County Fieldhouse that was only there for about 10 or 15 years. Anywho, but we got there, and all the tour buses were lined up next to the arena. And back then, they were American Eagle was the brand. Now they're Prevos, but back then, they were American Eagles. And they all had the goofy airbrushing on the sides of dragons and outer space and wizards and all sorts of stuff (laughs) that tour buses back then had. And I was like to my dad, I was like, that's what I want. I want to like, I want to go in that thing. And like, I like what, you know, I didn't really quite like, I'm like, well, that's what all the bands travel in. (laughs) How cool that thing is all chromed and painted. And I was like, 
I don't know what's in there, but I, that's my goal. <laughs> to and find out. Yeah, that was, that was my goal was to get in a tour bus. That's what, you know, like really. And then I started playing in bands after that and rock and roll became my life. <laughs> <laughs> The Intuitive Planetarium is an immersive digital dome theater experience that offers educational astronomy shows, live entertainment, and exciting theater experiences. The only one of its kind in the Southeast, the Intuitive Planetarium at the U.S. Space and Rocket Center offers an 8K digital planetarium and digital dome experience. Additional time tickets are required for Intuitive Planetarium experiences. Visit rocketcenter.com for tickets today. Like when they were taking applications for people to go to Mars, remember that? Like right. a couple of years ago, few yeah. years ago. Part of it was you will never come home. Like that was part of the thing. Right. That, you know, it was like this isn't like we're gonna you're gonna go and then we'll do stuff and come back. More than likely, once you get there, you will die there because yeah. you know that first few people. And I was like, well, shit, sign me up. I, I have nothing to offer you though. I'm not a botanist. I'm not. <laughs> you know, I'm not. A microbiology I'm nothing that can help you I can keep you entertained for the year on the flight right <laughs> you know um, all these people worry about like the man's like the mental part of the journeys um, and to me that's the easiest part because I've lived 30 years on a tour bus that's 42 feet long by 10 feet wide sleeping <laughs> in those bunks like you see in buses they're three high two deep yeah we call them coffins for a reason because they're about the size of a coffin yeah you just roll in from the side instead of getting placed in from the top. And I get my best sleep in those. I, I like, I would sleep. I could not wait to go to bed on a tour bus. Cause like the, the humming of the road and the little vibration and whatever the opposite of claustrophobia is, that's what I have. <laughs> I love tight and closed spaces. They make me feel really comfy and give me a blanket and I'm good to go. Mm. You know? So I'm like, I would have no problems like just entertaining myself for, you know, 18 months to get there but i never applied because i'm like ah, they'll never pick me because i have nothing to, i have nothing to offer them if if we didn't talk a little bit about your music career uh i think people who listen to the podcast would probably, probably yeah, wonder probably. what in the world we were uh, yeah, like why did you bother interviewing guys in other space you got started i mean nine inch nails you were y'all were young when you started we were young yeah my dad always loved marching bands and drum and bugle chords, stuff like that. So, and, and we'd go to the parades, and uh, he would take me to drum and bugle chord competitions. But he noticed at a really young age that I would always stamp my feet and do a little, ah, but it was right. always in time to whatever. And so when I was six, he asked me, like, would you want to play, learn how to play drums? And I was like, yeah. My parents, I'm adopted, so I actually don't know if I have, you know, people always ask, were your parents, you know? Right. Like, I have no idea, you know, I'm just... But so I was like, yeah, yeah. And nobody would take me because they all thought I was too young. And mo most places wouldn't start until like age eight or 10, somewhere in there. But he found a jazz drummer who said, you know what? He's a little young, but I'll tell you what, let's at least give him a shot. If, if in a, we'll give him a couple lessons or something, you know, cause it started off as groups and we only right. had a practice pad and we had to learn how to read music and play our 26 standard drum rudiments before he would ever let you sit behind a drum set. Because he was like, you're just not here to just start making a racket. You're, if you're going to learn, you're going to learn the right way. And that started with reading. And uh, and he's like, if, if he doesn't grasp it because he's too young, then, you know, bring him back in a couple years. My dad's like, it's all I'm asking, man. And, yeah. you know, 
guess who the king of the class was? This guy. So, yeah, I stuck with it. I played in bands. You know, I had a little punk band called the Eyelids with a Z. <laughs> and uh, we would open up and Erie had a couple cool live. One was a punk bar called Norbs. And then there was one called Sherlock Soundtime that bands that would come through. My dad would actually have to drive me to my gig, you know, and I'd unload my drums and he'd sit at the bar and wait. And as soon as we were done playing, we'd have to pack up and go home because I was, you know, 14, 15 years old. I couldn't right. even drive yet. But I was playing in a synth band because it was 1985 and my <laughs> keyboard player was friends with Trent because they both owned this very kind of rare and for the time kind of expensive German synthesizer they both have. He was trying to sell a drum machine and my keyboard player named John Trevethan. So he was like, I know this guy Trent, he's selling this drum machine you know, down in Mercer, which was about an hour south of us. And he, and I was like, oh, well, call him and tell him that I'll buy it. And he's like, all right. So, you know, about a week later, we drove down to Mercer and I bought Trent's drum machine off of him. And that's how we, that's how we met. Kind of hit it off immediately, you know, cut to about a year, year and a half later, Trent was living in Cleveland playing in a synth pop band there that was regionally very successful, really good, called Exotic Birds. I was going to Kent State for college, which is about 40 minutes south of Cleveland, but I would drive up to Cleveland and see Exotic Birds play like every show. Um, and because we, me and Trent had just become friends by that time. And at one point, Trent calls me like at my phone in the dorm. And uh, he called and said, well, our drummer's quitting. And uh, I was like, really? So, and he was like, so we need a drummer. And I'm like, uh-huh. And so I, <laughs> like, you know, that Friday I brought my drum set, my electronic drum set up. And we set up in, in the singer's basement. And, and, of course, I knew all the songs because I'd seen him play so many times. And just I ended up joining the band. And so that was the first band he and I played in together. And I was like 86 maybe 87 the band only lasted a couple more years um and then broke up and then he started writing his own songs and those songs eventually became the first album pretty hit machine which came out in 1989 so yeah if you do the math i was 21 i think when it all started going down 21 going on 22 you and trent reznor both were in synth pop bands which is not the nine inch nails sound no but if you go back and listen to pretty hate machine it's more synth pop than it is industrial. Yeah. You know? People always ask me like, well, what is industrial? Like how did, like, I don't even know what that means, you know? So I always explain it to people this way. Industrial comes from three things. One, it kind of has an origin with like music concrete and John Cage, uh, found objects as music. If anybody's listened to any John Cage, yes, right. it's completely almost nonsensical. Yeah. Like, you know, water walk is a bunch of things with steam and water and banging on stuff. You know, we all know 433 is literally just silence for right. four minutes, and three seconds, but that whole music concrete movement prepared piano, um, prepared piano for those that don't know is when you would take screws and washers and nuts and you put a bunch of junk inside of a grand piano so then when you play the keys, the vibrations and the hammers all make the, the bolts and screws jump around and gives the piano like this weird, trashy kind of sound. So, it, you know, so part of it starts with that experimental music part form um, that was, you know, furthered by bands like Throbbing Gristle and Einstein Neubotten. That's one avenue. The other avenue is two things were happening in the 80s. You had heavy metal coming up. Um, and we were in like metal metal now, not like Zeppelin metal, but we're talking like Iron Maiden metal, Judas Priest metal, Black Sabbath metal. Yes, they all started much earlier, but 
in the 80s and then we had hair metal coming into it you know we had early motley crew you know uh, too fast for love still freaking amazing album the first one and at the same time technology had really taken off and synthesizers were invented and drum machines were invented and this all happened in the early 80s we didn't have uh we didn't have personal computers to record midi uh we didn't right. you know uh so the synthesizer was like the mini mode which is the first kind of portable synthesizer is 77 78 somewhere around there um, so by the mid eighties, we had DX, we had all these synthesizers. Well, it was a, a decade of grand experimentation, but everybody thought new wave was really wimpy. The early Depeche Mode, Erasure, uh, Thompson Twins, but even metal, even dressed goofy with makeup, it, there was still aggression to it and screaming and distorted guitars, which there wasn't in the other. So what would happen if we took our our wimpy synthesizer sounds and we ran those through distortion pedals and we put them through guitar amps and instead of singing all pretty and with British accents we screamed and we tried to have the angst and the energy that heavy metal had whammo you have industrial you have people using electronic instruments and drum machines but playing them and recording them with experimentation and with the anger and experimentation of like an Iron Maiden album. But Pretty Hate Machine still wasn't like super heavy. It was still pretty light. Um, it just used a lot of those elements. Trent is just an amazing songwriter. We're, since we both came from the synth pop world, one thing synth pop writers all did was, man, they knew how to write a hit single. So a lot of people call the 80s, you know, the decade also of like one hit wonders. But if you go back and listen to those, Tune in your Sirius XM radio for 80s on 8 or First Wave and some of that stuff. Holy smokes, man. Every song is like a perfectly – it's a perfect pop song. Yeah. And so that's where we come from. We don't come from the eight-minute Black Sabbath, the Iron Maiden, the Trooper kind of uh, thing in the early 80s. We come from early Depeche Mode and Eurasia. So he just took those elements of like some of that early industrial but put them in a pop format. And then, of course, threw all of that mass appeal away with the broken EP that came out in ninety. 90- Three ninety two somewhere in there, where it was a rebellion against that, and <laughs> right. it's my favorite EP that we did because it's just brutal to listen to. It is, it is so distorted and so screamy and so angsty and so fast and furious tempo wise. Uh, songs like Wish, Happiness, and Slavery gave up. I, it's it's a brutal EP. So he even he like had to pull pull a 180 from the first record just to like go don't think this is don't think pretty hate machines what we're going to sound like forever ladies and gentlemen because it's not those are some of my favorite songs to play were were, were the ones out broken you know from there it was just a big wild ride sure how long were you with nine inch nails i left in i left in the four-year gap after we did the Lost Highway soundtrack with Perfect Drug and the David Bowie tour, that, that David Bowie outside tour that we did with uh, the two of us, where the bands merged and we did this crazy... If you right. can find it on YouTube, I think it is. It's still one of my favorite things we ever did in concert. Like, we were the... We, we opened, and I mean, it was a... They built it as a co-headliner, but Bowie's the headliner. Right. Freaking <laughs> Bowie, for crying out loud. So we played first and he closed. But we never wanted to put a... We didn't want to put a break in the show. We worked out like a six song segue that would start <laughs> off as Nine Inch Nails and slowly introduce Bowie and his band. And our band would slowly go away. So by the end, it was all just Bowie's band and Trent and Bowie singing a duet. 
So it was somewhere after that, but before The Fragile came out in 2000. So it, it was like late 97, early 98. It was somewhere in that, um, which became a real dark period for all of us. Um, me and Trent and we had just finished doing in 96, we had done the Antichrist Superstar record with Manson. Um, so the, you know, the power foursome was, you know, me and Trent Manson and Twiggy Ramirez and, and uh, living in New Orleans, it just kind of things, no pun, spiraled out of control for a lot of us and, and kind of stuff. So we had lived in L.A. when we did Downward Spiral. Two and a half years somewhere in there. And then, uh, but I really loved it out there. So I, I moved out there permanently and I was there from that moment until 2013. I'd gotten into producing at that point. I started producing uh, younger bands. Uh, when I was still with Nine Inch Nails, we scored this little video game called Quake. Um, <laughs> right. Because in interviews on our tour bus, now that we had a tour bus, we actually would bring out two old well they weren't old at the time they were really good they were 486 pcs and we right. put one in the front lounge one in the back lounge and we had coax cable running from the network cards in each one so that we could just simply play wolfenstein and doom death matches <laughs> and trying to talk about that in press and uh, we would right? we had these when we were like we would like people you know, we just all just take turns playing these death matches and uh something doom was amazing and it caught the caught the attention of id software and then they so they we went turn and i went to dallas a couple times and met with id and then they sent their representative who's american mcgee was american mcgee at the time out to new orleans while we were doing the music for that and if anybody's ever played it, i think it's available on steam now and one of the guns for that first game was a nail gun. And so when you pick up the crates of nails of, wep- of, of ammo for that, they, they, the, the, the weapon crates that held the nails, they put NIN logos on them and everything. So, so when I worked, moved to L.A., one of the, in 2000, I think it was, I did American McGee's big, hugely awesome solo game called American McGee's Alice, which was this Alice in Wonderland game. Yeah, um, It's actually one of the things I'm most known for. Um, you know, outside of being in the bands was, is that score. And so I got into scoring a lot of games. I did doom three quake four, you know, cause I was still it, uh, good friends with the id guys. Right. Uh, Didn't you do yeah. a Sonic, the hedgehog game? I did at one point? Sonic the hedgehog game. I did a Gretzky hockey game at one point, <laughs> I mean, but I, yeah, so I was scoring a lot of games back then and doing a lot of big name remixes for a lot of big name bands. The other thing that was big at, during that turn of the century so movies back then were doing these soundtrack albums, which were always either a remix of a song or an unreleased track by a band. And, you know, um, and, and it was very lucrative for me. And it was really cool. I did one for U2 for the, like they had the title track for the Tomb Raider movie mm-hmm. with Angela Jolie. So I got to actually work with those guys and record them for two days, doing a, a whole new recording of the song Elevation. Um, and it's called Elevation Tomb Raider Remix. But after Napster, it was like, well, I'm not going to go spend $16 when all I really want is that one U2 song. I'll just go get it. You know, right. I don't give a crap about the rest of stuff. So that, that, that cottage industry fell apart. Again, almost within one year, it was completely gone. And that brings us back to STEM and technology in general is that you cannot hide from technology. It Once it's out of the bottle, it is there forever. And the music industry completely mishandled that. They should have embraced it immediately and figured out a model before it fell too far apart. And by the time they got their acts together, it was too late. What made you decide to get into teaching then after after um, all of this? 
Well, in 2004, I inadvertently ended up in Marilyn Manson because their drummer fell off the stage in Germany and really hurt himself, Ginger. So I got a random call from Manson's manager. Now, I had worked on their first three albums, um, playing drums on some songs, programming MIDI drums on other songs, recording Manson's vocal. It was for the greatest hits record, and the manager's like, look, Manson thought of you because, I mean, you either played the drums or programmed the MIDI on half of the greatest hits, so... It's six weeks, it's U.S. only, it's theaters, it's just greatest hits. I was like, oh, man, that sounds like so much fun to actually join the band. And I'm like, well, he give me a goofy name, you know, and uh, he never did. Uh, <laughs> I, was really, I kept saying, Manson, come on, man, I want, one, I want a name. And he's like, dude, he, and, and he was always very respectful to me. He was like, dude, you're Chris Freno. You've already got a name. And I was like, oh, you're so sweet. But damn it, I really want a name. Right. <laughs> um, so that six weeks turned into about seven and a half years that I was in the band. And when Ginger came back on the following tour, uh, I moved over because in that meantime, the keyboard player quit Pogo. So I became a keyboard player live. But I was Manson's full-time studio producer, engineer. Uh, worked on like two and a half albums with him. You know, it was uh, him and Twiggy and, and, and stuff like that. So... But I, I completely had a meltdown in 2011 or 2012, something like that. And uh, by that point, was an incredible, awful addict, um, balancing a teeter-totter of alcohol and cocaine that would, you know, man, a different podcast for a different day. Eight sure. years sober now, but back then it was, it was bleak. And, um, and... I, I'm very open about my addiction stories because I think that's how it's important to share those to help other people with the same problem and to help people not go that far down that road and end up where I ended up. Um, so I'm very open about that with my students because it is a pitfall in the, in the music industry. It really is. So I went and, um, I was starting to volunteer for some after school programs for music. Like in Hollywood, there was this a friend of mine would bring in his musician buddies. And so I went in and did a couple of those. And, and then I was asked to travel to an art school to talk about music. So I did that and was in Wisconsin. And then I went to another school. And slowly people started finding out that I would do these like little lectures. And I was like, just if you fly me there, I will be happy to do whatever you want. I'm not, you know, I don't need, I don't want a fee or anything. Just, you know, just bring me to your school. Sadly though, the gym was the final straw of 40 years of drumming and my rotator cuff had torn out on my left side and I was living in just ungodly pain. And so I was scheduled to go have surgery to get the rotator cuff repaired. So when they called me about it, I was, I told them I couldn't do my, my, because my little every semester little trip to Wisconsin and that school called back like three days later and said you know what we actually need another teacher we'd like to offer you a one-year teaching contract come here to Wisconsin and try teaching um if you hate it because teaching is not for everybody that's for sure but you seem to have a natural instinct for it go back to LA you know but and so I talked to my girlfriend Melissa, my partner, we've been together for 10 years. And she was like, I think that'd be a cool thing. I think that would be really good for you to do that. It'll get you out of L.A., you know. Uh, even she at the time didn't know how bad my addictions really were. Yeah, I mean, she knew I drank too much, you know. But um, I, I even hit a lot of it from her. And 
So it just seemed like something that was like maybe the change I needed after being in LA for almost 20 years. Right. I thought maybe this is the, the re, hit the reset button that I need, you know? And so I did. And the day I walked into the classroom, it was like, I'd been teaching my whole life. Um, and that stems from when, when you're in the studio with people like, you know, with nine channels, we learned from the producers we were in the room with, you know, when right. I was Billy Corgan's programmer, I sucked up every piece of info I could from Billy for the six months I worked with him. You know, I was in Guns N' Roses briefly for the, like the six months after Smashing Pumpkins for six months when I left. This was the first things I did after uh, leaving Nails and going back to uh, going back to L.A. You know, you just suck up knowledge from everybody. That's how it's always been done is you just kind of pass it on like that. There's no textbook or roadmap for rock and roll. Did you have a degree? Did not. I came within about 18 credit hours of getting my bachelor's at Kent before we really got big. And, you know, just I was like, well, I'm never going to need this. Start teaching. And guess what I needed? Right. Um, you know, I got I got a couple gold platinum records. Well, you know, want to scan those off. It's like, no, you don't understand that things there's this thing called accreditation. And, you know, you learn every industry has its own weird things yep. yeah because you can you can get like a temporary right you can thing to teach like knowing like if you that you're going to get the degree so i had to do that and i, I did that uh in in wisconsin um pretty much right away and then during covid now that i've been teaching for seven or eight years i i want to move up the ranks like and um you have to have one degree above what you're going to teach it's right. kind of the rule. So if you want to teach two-year associates, you got to have a bachelor's. If you want to teach bachelor or four-year level, you got to have a master's or higher. I found a school to get a master's in music technology, and I did the whole thing online. And then I started school again a month ago, this fall term, uh, to get an MBA, which is a terminal degree because I want to move up that ladder. And there is no such thing as PhD in rock and roll right. or PhD in recording. It just doesn't exist. Um, running and working within the music industry, we have to deal with contract law, uh, like, you know, personal contract law. We have to deal with royalty accounting and how the money all functions uh, within our industry. It's very different than being the president of a hotel chain right. or or going to wall street. So there's been this thing where there's now specialized MBAs in certain industries. So one college called Troy university in Southern Alabama, who is, has a very renowned music degree, uh, music program and masters and PhD in music and conducting and orchestrating very, very, like I said, renowned. They started the first ever MBA in the music industry. Um, so I'm, Getting that degree right now. Um, and that will be my terminal degree for my industry so that I will be able to um, teach you to even higher level. The whole the point of the whole story is you never stop learning. You never stop growing no matter how I'm 55 now. Um, you it, Education is lifelong. You know, the, the brain has two sides, our, our, our creative side and our analytical side. We, you have to exercise this brain. And in K through 12, that all comes from your art classes and, and your music classes. You know, every one of us had to learn to play the recorder when we were five years old, playing three blind mice on a you know plastic recorder, that kind of stuff. But even scientific breakthroughs come from creative thinking. You don't solve a problem that's never been solved by 
looking up formulas in a textbook, you you take knowledge that's already been gained. Then, you know, like new medicines. It's like, yes, I'm a microbiologist, but I am using my creative half of the brain to go, but what if we could take a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of this and cure AIDS? Holy crap, that would be amazing. So you have to have that creative side of your brain. So even the scientists I talk to, the rotary clubs I talk to, um, the city governments I talk to, the, 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 the space and rocket center people I talk to, the one thing I'm encouraged about that, the, the one thing COVID did do, um, it ruined a lot of stuff for a lot of people. But one thing it did do was it showed the world the value of two things, teachers <laughs> and the arts. Because when we were all stuck at home for almost two solid years, what did we all do? We streamed more Netflix than we ever streamed in our lives. We listened to more music off of Spotify and Apple Music than we ever listened to in, in years. We pulled the, the paint set out from under the bed covered in dust. You know, the, the, guitar, the guitar we won when we were 16 that grandma bought us for Christmas that we learned three chords and then put it in a closet. We pulled that all back out and we either consumed arts or we tried to get back into making our arts for ourselves. Just because there was nothing else to do. It was arts. Nobody sat around memorizing the periodic table, you know? I mean, maybe somebody did, but, you know, we all made art. Train like an astronaut and get lost in space at the U.S. Space and Rocket Center. Shuttle simulator programs are available to try your hand at piloting the shuttle and is based on both the past and the future of space exploration. Your team of up to four participants must work together to land the shuttle and bring the crew safely home. Museum admission is required. Find out available times, prices, and more at rocketcenter.com and get ready to blast off. If you had a chance today to go up into space, would you go? I would in a heartbeat. Um, and I would do it to raise awareness for the arts and I would do it as a fundraiser to wear, raise awareness for the arts. And, you know, it'd be like one of those sponsor me to go to space things because I would, one of the things I don't have enough money to do, but one of the things I really want to do is try to raise money for, because for, for schools to buy instruments, anybody that sends their kids to, you know, public schools of any sort, I was a public school kid, you know, what are the first programs that get cut when there's budget issues? It's always the arts and the musics, uh, you know, and, and after school curriculars. Um, but the, sh the short answer is yes, please take me to space. Anybody please. Um, and let's turn it into, I know it's a science endeavor, but let's bring a little arts into it. Yeah. And I'll, I'll bring my ukulele and I'll, I'll serenade you with a little ukulele song or a, a little synth or something like that. I'll bring a whole bag of guitar picks, even though I don't really play guitar. I play a little bit of bass. Just let them all float around. Yeah, I'll let them all float around and then we'll bring them back and we'll sell them or something. There you go. You know, like, you're like, but I really, man, I want to help these poor schools down here in the South with, their, with, with music because, man, none of them really have it. Yeah. Because of, because of money, yeah. education is the most important thing. Uh, do not skimp on your education. It doesn't matter. If, like it's exactly goes full circle to where we started this conversation an hour ago. Learning is learning. You may not use the thing you're learning currently for the thing you want to do eventually, but it will always always help enrich you.
you know, music is just math. It's just complex math of fractions, you know, four, four, three, four, six, eight, seven, four. Um, you, there, they do tie together and that's how I fit into uh, space camp is it's an educational experience. And some of those kids go on to become like Ben and they become the president of the board and they've gone to space camp 20 times. Hi Ben. Uh, Cause I know he's going to hear this. And <laughs> You know, and other people go once and they just use it as an enrichment experience, but maybe their life doesn't go down that path. Um, but learning is learning and, and being in different situations is learning, learning how to deal with other people. Socialization uh, at a young age is important, I think, um, which is why doing everything with a cell phone and, and, and social media, it's the social media is the least social thing that's ever been invented. Um, and I just don't understand it. So that's where I come in is it's just education's education. And please don't ignore the creative part of your brains as you go through your educational experience. And that's a perfect way to end. <laughs> I've got a spaceship that I'm waiting for. I'm flying up to the stars. I'm gonna dare to explore this time. I'll let you know